Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Welcome to the 40th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and most importantly, directing. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Oren Kaplan. Today we're talking about the art of double dipping. That's when you have more than one job at the same time and how you make that work. And then also we're talking about how you collaborate with people who have slightly different ideals or visions than you do on a project. And we're going to introduce a new segment called Call Sheet that's going to be a regular segment on our show where we look at a call sheet, which is a list of all the crew members on a shoot, and talk about various positions and how we deal with them. So I think it's going to be a good one. But before we get into that, Matt, I was just really curious, what have you been working on lately? Oh, thanks for asking, Oren. It's been a while since we've recorded, so kind of a lot. But the main thing, actually, is that I just turned in the Bible on um, my new show with ABC's digital group that I don't think I've talked about too much on the on the podcast. But anyway, the point is, I turned in a Bible and just got notes back. And uh, they were really great, really thoughtful notes. And I thought it was worth bringing up because so often people imagine executives or development people as, um, you know, these bullies that are trying to ruin an artist's vision or something like that. And uh, that's not really super true. They're always well-intentioned and sometimes they could be wrong, certainly. But um, the reason that we have development people is because sometimes you need an objective point of view to remind you of what the audience is experiencing and good development people know that and know when to get out of the way and know when to nudge you in another direction so it was really fun actually to like get great notes and then for my project to be much better as the result it was cool yeah i mean in defense of development people i think we almost always hear about them when they're when we're complaining about them but we never really hear about them when they've done like a really great job yeah, absolutely. And part of that is that sometimes a development person just knows to, to not say anything and to get out of the way. And so that uh, it becomes an invisible art, you know, but a director has the freedom to work in the studio system often because a development person has their back and has their best interest in mind. Yeah, totally. And just for our listeners that don't know, when you say you turned in a Bible to these people, is this like the King James Bible? 
in a non-denominational. Yeah, it was my it was my family's Bible. We've had it for a long time, and I just thought that people would you know understand the Enlo clan a little bit better if they read my great grandpa's marginalia. Okay. Uh, n- no, no. So the Bible, uh, the Bible for the show basically is a step beyond the treatment where we're kind of I'm spelling out specifically how the show works, who our characters are, what our episodes are like. You know, in this case, I outlined each each episode. It's there, it's when you get into the real nitty gritty of writing, and it becomes half outline and half character study on what your show is going to be and what the overall shape of it will be for the entire season. Okay, so just because I think this is interesting, so ABC Digital Group is who you turned it into, right? Mm-hmm. And they are doing digital series on the internet mm-hmm. for all ages, or is it more, more like millennial aimed? I, you know, to be honest, I'm a little unsure of what I'm allowed to talk about when we get into that stuff, because I don't know how much has been announced. Okay. Well, me not knowing yet. anything, I will just assume it's aimed at millennials, because that's <laughs> what all digital <laughs> series are aimed at, and my mom is not going to watch it. I'm sorry, Matt. Uh, um, sure. Fair enough. Fair enough. But so you get a meeting with them, probably through your agent or manager, or someone you know <laughs> that you met at one of your fancy exclusive USC parties. Sure, you sure. Go yeah, in yeah. And you go in. We shake hands and then we do the secret symbol and then um, right. you guys we kill each, other, we, each other's palms and do the blood exchange. Yeah, exactly. And then you kill the goat and then you say the secret words and the portal opens up. That's why you're always getting my goat. Um, so, you, no, so you get a meeting and then you go in and you have a few ideas you're pitching or you just have one idea that you're pitching? So, you know, we've talked about how I like to go in for a general first, just to kind of take the temperature of what each different place is looking for. Uh, So that was the case with these people as well. I went in, I just sat down, I said, hey, this is what I do. This is why I think we would work well together. And they said, great, let let us tell you what we do. And then I came back with uh, log lines, basically, and said, hey, here's a bunch of log lines from the shoebox or stuff that's custom that would be right for your your platform then they said hey we want to hear about these three and i went in and pitched them and so a log line is like hey it's a show about kids that are really into video games and they yeah what if aliens and, landed in your right. backyard and that's yeah. all you have pretty much yeah i you know i will give it a little it's like sometimes i'll have a title sometimes i'll put a little bit more spin on it i think that a, a log line is really great just in conveying the premise. But I think in my case, in particular, when I'm kind of working in, when I'm not in a specific genre, like a comedy director is such a broad term that it could mean a ton of different things. So I like to say, I like to clue in what sort of tone of voice we'll be taking with the show. So I'll say the deadpan styling of the British office meets the zany antics of the workaholics. Or something much better than that, hopefully. Okay. But you know, kind of giving giving people a sense of wh- what the show feels like, in addition to what it's literally about. Right. So they this these people said, okay, we really like this idea. We want you to write a treatment. Mm-hmm. And are yeah, they paying correct. you for this? Yes. Yes. So they pay you yeah. for the treatment. So so what happens then is that I so I went in. They said, hey, we like these log lines. I went in and pitched. And sold the show off of the pitch. But what it is, is it becomes a step deal at that point. So we pre-negotiate how much money I'm going to make for every single consecutive step in the process. So a treatment is X number of dollars. And then a pilot or the first three episodes is X number of dollars, etc., etc. So, uh, so is we the all Bible would... 
the same thing as the treatment? The the Bible and the treatment are kind of one and the same. Yeah, exactly. It's okay. it's the first step after saying, "Hey, we love this pitch. We want to spend some money on it." But because it's a step deal, because I'm not super fancy, I take my the whole pizza in slice by slice, basically. So the payday is much smaller, and I think it's a pretty common a common practice for new companies or smaller companies, so that they're not making huge lump sum investments. They can say, okay, well, we want to play the field a little bit and see a lot of different stuff from a lot of different young, hungry creators, basically. Right. It's this thing I've been seeing a lot lately, which is kind of an incubator style mm-hmm. uh, development process. Let's let's bring in 40, 100 people to pitch. Let's choose 20 of them and give them some money to develop, right, treatments, shoot tests, whatever. And then right. of those 20, we're actually going to try to sell those ideas to buyers and whoever gets bought, we will give them the money and we'll make that show. And that's pretty much how New Form Digital works, who right, you know, right. we, both you and I have done shows with. The, and the difference between the New Forms of the world and the ABCs or the networks of the world is uh, distribution, right? So New Form has to take a show that they have uh, that they've maybe made a short of or they've made a cool sizzle for or something like that. And then they have to go sell it to your Go90s of the world or your ABCs of the world. ABC has the luxury of being both the distributor and the developer. So I get to skip that middleman. I just have to know a handful of people to get my show on the air. Cool. Yeah. Well, cool. That's very informative. Thank you, Matt. For once, you said something useful. Finally, this thing is worthwhile. Uh, so, Oren, what have you been working on lately? Uh, I've been kind of all over the place. Had a very celebrity-filled last few weeks. I spent a crazy night with Jennifer Lawrence in Montreal. Had absolutely nothing to do with any of the work I've ever done. And uh, yesterday, I actually shot this commercial with Kellen Lutz from Twilight. You know him? No, uh, he I don't. He played Hercules, and he was the voice of Tarzan. Uh, what's cool about him is even though... You know, he kind of appeals to a very specific segment, pretty much people that love Twilight. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of other people, I would say adults, maybe don't know him as well. Um, He still has kind of that TMZ following. And we had TMZ showed up to our set yesterday. (laughs) And Uh. our AD kicked him out. And I was like, why? Let him come in. Don't they want to talk to me? Apparently, they were not interested in talking to me. Oh, I'm so (laughs) disappointed. I really wanted you to say, now there's a picture of you up on TMZ. No, I wish. But Kellen Lutz is a really is a really nice guy, and he's actually like invented. He has an invention. He showed it to me, and I guess it's been on Conan and stuff. But he gave everyone on set these sunglasses at the end. He's like, "Yeah, this is my invention." And so it's these sunglasses, and we're like, "Okay, cool, they're sunglasses. Thank you." And he's like, "Put them on, put them on." And we're like, "Okay." So I put on a pair of sunglasses, and they're totally black, like you blacked out. You can't see it all through them. And I was like, "Uh, okay, what are these for? He's like, well, you know, I was like on an airplane and I was wearing like the Virgin America, like purple, like eye cover thing to sleep and some pap, I guess that's like short from paparazzi, some pap like snapped some pics of me and I just like didn't look tough at all wearing this like purple eye mask. So I was like, what if I make like tough looking eye masks? And so he invented these sunglasses that are pretty much, you put them on and they black out. They're just totally opaque. You can sleep with them. Yeah. I was like, oh, these are perfect for like college classes and stuff. He said yeah. they sell them at like Hudson News now. I'll, I'll find out what they're called. But <laughs> I thought that, that was kind of clever. He's kind of, he has that personality of like, hey, why don't they have something like this? And then he just goes and makes it. And I guess that's, uh, if you've been in Twilight, I guess that's like a privilege that you get. To yeah. Have. 
He just like was like, well, I've got some spray paint and these old sunglasses. Yeah, no, but they're like a real thing. They're like, you know, manufactured so funny. Them with his friends. So anyway, it was really fun. And then I did this Quiznos commercial um, a couple weeks ago, which I showed you a cut. I think it's it's really fun. And I think by the time this podcast goes up, it'll already be out. So it'll be kind of nice to put the boards on our website and then kind of the final product because it was not a huge budget. And there were some really kind of interesting challenges in it and the storyboards that I got. One of them was that there was supposed to be a man hanging upside down from a cocoon that was hanging from a tree. And then a bird was supposed to eat the cocoon. (laughs) Um, And so I'm actually doing a talk for my mom, oddly enough. My mom does these talks with like entertainment people for like uh, uh, groups of people. Like they they do these dinners and they invite some people from Hollywood to talk to them about what they do. And, And they do different industries. But I'm doing this talk on that commercial specifically and about how craft and creativity intersect and, you know, basically when you're a director and you get storyboards that seem impossible to shoot, how you break it down to the pieces that will, will give you the end product. And so it's going to be it's going to be fun. And I want to kind of bring some of it to the podcast. And that analysis of, of how you break things down is, is kind of interesting. So that's it. That's been my week. Yeah, that's a pretty busy week, man. Well, I love those spots. So I can't wait to, uh, for the listeners to check it out. So you can visit JustShootItPod.com to check out the commercial. It should be up by then. And while you're at it, why don't you do us all a favor and share Just Shoot It with a friend of yours. We're really trying to grow the podcast. We've got a really awesome, dedicated, loyal fan base, and we really want to just see it grow a tiny bit more. So if you tell one filmmaking buddy of yours, you've got some, there's a fellow nerd out there somewhere who would love this podcast. Do us a favor, tell that person about it. And while you're at it, go rate us on iTunes. That's the other way that people discover the show is just through rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Just shoot it, pod. It'd be great. And that reminds me, we did one other thing that happened this last week, which was really cool, is Andy Young, one of our listeners, who now we're actually working with because he's also an editor and he just edited some stuff for Matt, which is cool. He wrote an article for Movie Maker Magazine about us, just a little interview with Just Shoot It pod. So check it out. Google Movie Maker Just Shoot It podcast and you'll see it. And thanks, Andy, for doing that. That's awesome. Thanks, Andy. Yes, so awesome. And uh, we've been longtime fans of Movie Maker Magazine. So awesome. They gave us our very own discount code. So if you have thought about getting yourself a subscription to Movie Maker Magazine, if you use the discount code Just Shoot It, all one word, or Just Shoot It, uh, either way it works. Uh, that'll get you five dollars off any print <laughs> subscription. So that's uh, that's fourteen ninety five for one year instead of nineteen ninety five. Two years is only nineteen ninety five. Three years is twenty nine ninety five. That's a pretty great deal. Uh, and you can just go to moviemaker dot com slash subscriptions and enter just shoot it as the promo code. And while we're on random tangents, let me tell you, like Movie Maker Magazine, they have like once a year they put out an episode about. It's called like the the filmmaker's guide or something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-mm. Like once a year, they put out this episode, this um, issue of their magazine that is basically like the soup to nuts instructions on how to make feature films, from re- writing to development to production to post production. And it's where I really learned about everything I know about film financing, about how you split up ownership in a film with investors and all that stuff. And it's really fat. Like you can learn like years and years of knowledge of like how to make movies from reading this one issue. I'll find the issue and we'll put a link to it online too. So 
Anyway, okay, let's get into the meat of things. Yeah. So, Oren, you have been in the wonderful position, as have I in, in recent days, where we've both been kind of stacked with extra work. And so, in the industry, sometimes people call that double dipping. That's when you're working two jobs at the same time. It's a little bit easier, I think, for directors to do this than it is for you know, people who have to be working full-time, 100% concentrated on a job in order for them to be booked. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, no, the, the first time I heard the term double dipping was like, I was working on some set and some grip or something was like, like falling asleep. I was like, oh, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I've just been double dipping. And that's like when they shoot, they're on two shoots at the same time. One's a daytime shoot and one's like a nighttime shoot. So yeah. they'll like work on your set from like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Then they'll go to another set from like 10 p.m. to, you know, 6 a.m. because they're shooting nights. And those people, that's it's pretty much dangerous. <laughs> Yeah, super dangerous. That's, That's actually where I first happened. learned it as well. And it was the dude driving my truck, and I was furious. Oh my yeah. And you get it. You know, it's like some of these people are getting like 100 bucks a day, and so they can make 200 bucks a day. Um, yeah. You know, in the same amount of time, but they have to do this insane thing. So with directing, what I find, you know, because I do directing and visual effects, I get a lot of people saying like, hey, we're thinking of doing this project. We don't have a shoot date yet, but we think it's going to be the first week of August. Can you do it? And I'll be like, yeah, my first week of August is open. Yeah, I'll do it. And then I'll get like a VFX job. Like, hey, can we do like these 50 shots for this movie? It's just due by September. Can you do it? Okay, yeah, sure. And then nothing happens and time passes. And then I've taken like another job. And then those two jobs that I said yes to now say, okay, we're shooting now the second week of August and we need these shots done like next week. And we're starting tomorrow. We're sending you, here's the check to get started. And here's like the hard drive you need. And here's the script and just go. And so you're like sitting there with like five jobs at the same time. And everyone thinks that you're 100% working on their job. So you can't, I can't tell one project, oh, sorry, I didn't get to your visual effects because I just got a directing gig. You kind of have to not lie, but you have to tell, you have to start kind of, talking and half-truths to tell people why you haven't finished things. <laughs> yeah, do you well, ever I, get into that situation? I do get into that situation. You know, I don't do the VFX part, but as a freelancer in general, you always have to make the person that you're working with feel like they are the most important person, right? So it's, it's another way of saying, oh, you know, you're only working on one project at the same time. I think that as a director, people know that you're kind of gigging around and, you know, maybe have a couple things going all at once. You know, I'm always trying to develop something new, write on something, and also be prepping or shooting something at the same time. And the great thing about short form is that that's pretty manageable. It's not crazy. And when we're never shooting one thing and then going to another set to shoot another thing in the same day. Like, that that would be right. insane in terms of... But we are doing things thing. back to back. We have a shoot on Wednesday things. for one client, a shoot on Thursday for another client. Exactly. And on Wednesday, you're getting all the emergency calls for tomorrow's shoot, you know, while you're right. on a different shoot. Right. So I think that the trick for me, whenever you find like, oh, shoot, I've got two shoot days back to back, that's where it gets the hairiest because exactly you're exactly right. That day before the shoot is always the pressure cooker of, you know, things falling through, creative changing, that sort of stuff. So I try to uh, do my best to avoid having two days stacked back to back. But when it does happen, the main thing that I do is just talk to my producers and my team and let them know that's the deal. 
you know, because because most of the time you're working with freelancers who have to do the same thing. And I'm also very mindful of not barking at my team if I ever see guys ducking out to take a phone call or like texting in between shots because I know that they're putting in the order for someone else's shoot or something like that or troubleshooting another problem. That's what they had to do for me. You know, like they were on someone else's set prepping for the job that we're on right now. So I'm, I'm pretty mindful of not, you know, like a, if they're totally distracted, I'll, I'll sometimes have to say something. But for the most part, I, I try to be respectful and understand that that's the nature of this freelance economy. So do you think, like if, if you, I was asking you for advice, do you think I should be honest? So like right now I have like two different visual effects jobs and editing, finishing up edits on the Quiznos job starting the edits on this Kellen Lutz job and at the same time developing this show with New Form Digital. Mm -hmm. Like if New Form calls me today and says, hey, can you come to the office tomorrow for a meeting, which is like, you know, an hour drive from my house. Do I say no? (laughs) I have these other projects or do I just kind of somehow make it work and just work crazy nights and stuff? I think I think the answer is work crazy nights, unfortunately. And it, here's why, right? So so the nature Which is of why VFX, uh, this business breaks up families. <laughs> and why we haven't recorded an episode in a while, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So VFX, part of the reason that you're taking those jobs is because they're flexible, because it's just you on your computer alone. And so you could do that at four in the morning. You could do that at noon. It doesn't really matter. Right. So that's the flexibility that you're buying yourself with taking those gigs you know, a business meeting, you know, is going to happen during business hours or maybe a drinks, you know, so right. so you can kind of schedule around that a little bit. The problem is, is that the new form job is the best job. Right. <laughs> right. So, 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 so let's extrapolate that's where it gets out a little interesting, bit. Right? That's where it gets interesting. Exactly. It's like the, the stuff that you're kind of doing for free or for rather for the hope that uh, the project actually happens when you're pitching, when you're writing on spec, you know, when you're taking coffees, all of that stuff that feels like it's not a concrete gig. That's, that's the job of directing, right? And sometimes it's hard to keep your head above water or sometimes you want a little bit extra money. Sometimes you just had a kid. So you say, yes, I'm going to do these VFX jobs as well or AD or produce or, you know, write commercials. Uh, People do all sorts of side hustles to kind of stay in the game. It's that back and forth, and you just have to remember that oftentimes the stuff that's not paying right now is the long-term investment in your future, right? The the jobs with big creative opportunities, those are the ones that are going to get you the bigger, better jobs that you want. And you probably don't want to be the VFX guy. Like, you don't want to have your own VFX company. You don't want to be, you know, writing commercials forever. Wh- whatever that side hustle is, that's the short-term play. And so the nature of being a a filmmaker is figuring out how to do those side hustles, you know? Like when I was at Comedy Central, like that's the job that I had to keep my head above water and I had to wake up every morning to write. And fortunately, writing like VFX, you can kind of do whenever, you know? And you just have to force yourself to do it. And it means missing out on having fun or dinner with your family sometimes right unfortunately yeah that's the hard part a couple times i've done this i was actually doing visual effects on this horror film a few years ago when i got the call like hey we want you to direct this tv movie uh it starts next week and i just told the people that i was doing the effects for the horror film i said hey 
guys, I'm really sorry, but I have this opportunity I can't pass up. So I'm going to find someone to replace myself with and I'm jumping ship because I don't think I can do these two jobs in parallel. And so obviously replacing yourself is is like a really nice thing to do always. Um, it's a great way to keep from burning bridges, that's for sure. Yeah, but sometimes it's really hard to find someone that will do what you were going to do for as cheap as you were going to do it, you know? Or you have to teach a whole new person like everything about the project, which ends up being a lot of work as well. So yeah, it's. but I think, I think there is, you're right, that there is like some sort of understanding where we're all, we'd all love to be, you know, directing like the next Marvel movie or the next whatever uh, movie you, you want to direct. Um, uh, the, the next artsy-fartsy comedy? Yeah, the next, uh, the next Greta Gerwig film. And so they know when we're doing like a, you know, little kind of sketch of the day type of thing that there's always the danger that they'll, that, that you'll leave. And what's actually kind of nice about it and a little bit empowering, you know, we started this conversation with you saying that as freelancers, we have to make the client feel like they're the most important thing in the world, which we do to some degree. But when you have the privilege to say like, hey, you know, I like your job, but I have this much better offer to go for, the initial client might say like, okay, well, what's it going to cost to keep you, you know? Mm-hmm. And there is the, the double dipping and triple dipping as stressful as it is and as much as it drives us crazy, it, it does kind of start in some weird way it starts making us choose jobs, which lets us say no to jobs, which, let, which lets us ask for more money. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, the other thing is that if I've said yes to a job, I honor that for sure. Like, I don't think I've ever ducked out when a new opportunity comes up. I may be wrong on that, but I, I'm pretty sure that's the case. Well, but is it better but, to duck out like mentally and just still do the job or... Is it better to say like, hey, I'm not going to be able to focus on what I think this is going to take to be good. So yeah. I'm going to yeah, find I, a replacement. I think that's the mistake that I will make. I, I'm, I've gotten a lot better about knowing, oh, okay, do I actually have the bandwidth to achieve the project, to achieve the goals that this project has hired me for? But I still have a pretty big ego when it comes to that stuff. And I'm like, I'll just do it all. As right. long as they're not literally on top of each other, I'll do it. Great. I love it. Uh, yeah. And that has has gotten me not into a jam, but there have been instances where I would have done a better job if I'd had a day of rest before a shoot. Right. I learned that term from Joe McAleer, the bandwidth. You know, he'll just say, like, I just don't have enough bandwidth to deal with this. And I was like, hmm, that's a pretty good, <laughs> it's a pretty good term. And so I just, I kind of co-opted it and use it a lot of times when people are like, hey, you know, we think you'd be perfect for this project. And you never want to say no because you don't want them to not hire you again. But you can say like, hey, right now I have three concurrent projects. I just don't have the bandwidth. But please keep me in mind, you know, and I'm these are the types of things I'm working on. If you have things like this, please call me. And it's actually something I learned from Abby Fuller that, you know, try to tell people what you specialize in so that when those specific projects come up, they're like, well, there's Matt and Oren. They do everything. But then there's this. Maroon 5 music video and they like Tim Nakashi so we're going to call Tim for this you know exactly exactly so anyway well cool that's very helpful and uh, now I'm going to go lie to everyone per your recommendation <laughs> you could, I think you could just say hey I don't have enough bandwidth that's not a lie you know okay yeah. you, you could be like hey I, time warner I, cable 300 megabits down <laughs> 100 up okay cool well let's move on to our next topic which was again something that came up for me this week 
working on this new project and I thought is interesting is we're primarily directors. I mean, you're, you write a lot more than I do. I, I write a little bit. I'm very much involved in editing scripts that I get. But a lot of what I direct was created and originated by a different person. And a lot of times I go into the project and I have my take on the script. Like, oh, I want to do make it super gritty and handheld and kind of, you know, cutty. And then the person that created it will say like, well, I actually really thought of it as like dolly moves and really stationed, like kind of more like, you know, Wes Anderson film and with like a beautiful production design. And as a director, it's, it's on one hand, you're, you're paid to be confident, you know, and to know what you want and to be able to have a, a uniformed vision to get everyone on, on board. But on the other hand, you're trying to serve the script and the creator and try to make something that the person that hired you wants you to make. So how do you balance that when, you're, when your version of the script is just so much different than the owner's version of the script or the creator's version of the script? Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple things going on. I and mean, I think it's the business is changing a little bit for us. I think in television, the director is not king, the writer is king. So the director is hired on to execute the vision of the executive producers and to uh, uphold the previous, you know, visual elements and style that the show has already been working on, right? And then when you're the filmmaker, when you're directing a feature film, you're the boss and you get to say, this is how you hired me because you wanted my take and, and this is the way it needs to be and you have to be the the ultimate visionary. So I think the thing that we're dealing with is as you're in this sort of premium digital space, it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. And you know we're getting hired because we can execute and we know how to bring things in on time and on budget and add an extra level of polish to what essentially feels like an independent film, but is also by a TV creator basically. And so that, I think right. that's kind of where we end up butting heads I, on shitty boyfriends. You know, I didn't write that and uh, it was definitely Jessica Cabot, the show's creator's vision. And so we were constantly negotiating back and forth between comedic styles and points of view and visual representation. And I think the way that it ended up slicing up is that, you know, I tended towards kind of the technical side. Like I, I would be able, mm -hmm. I'd have to step in if it was something where it's like, hey, we just can't do this because the sun's about to go down and I don't have the light to make this a night exterior or something like that. Or, you know, I would have, I kept my eye towards big laughs, like hard jokes, mm -hmm. character and the overall arc, right? Because like I was, it was a show that was cross-boarded. So we were jumping around in different scenes. Characters were all over the place. It was the beginning of the show. It was the end of the show, all of that stuff. So I had to really take a macro view of the whole thing. Right. But but well, we but were lucky. We sorry. We, we sorry. but we were lucky because visually I got to do whatever I wanted, and so it was really right. like what comedically is going to be different. And so you just shoot it two ways. Whereas I think what you're describing, Oren, is something where the the overall take is slightly different. Yeah, I mean my t my instinct on this new project I'm doing was to go like like I love Jessica Jones. I love Stranger Things. I love Kick Ass. You know so. And what I think those three things have in common are they're kind of like grounded. Kick-Ass goes like off the rails by the third act. I don't know if you've seen it. It's like crazy yeah, yeah. people with superpowers. But it starts with these three kind of losers in high school. And it's it's like a little like graphic, but it's still 
you know, there's still the three guys eating in the cafeteria and the guy getting beat up in the parking lot. It's like a little gritty. But Jessica Jones, even more so in Chronicle. And I really like kind of that naturalistic, grounded performance and camera work in kind of a heightened reality. The creator of this show really like loves like Tarantino, like Kill Bill, like martial arts films, just much more kind of stylized colors and motions and camera moves, more dramatic, like crazy close up to a crazy wide shot that just has a slow push in, you know. And then the writer was really into Edgar Wright, you know, Mm -hmm. who did like Shaun of the Dead and all those things. And he has obviously a very, very, very specific style that I don't even wouldn't even want to like try to copy like, obviously, I'm inspired by a lot of his work, but to me, an Edgar Wright film like Scott Pilgrim or Shaun of the Dead feels very different than like Jessica Jones, you know? And so so it's kind of like, you know, a lot of people talk about this as such a collaborative art form or medium, which is totally true, and I love that about it. But it's also, to me, collaboration in a way is compromise as well. Are you making Kill Bill or are you making Scott Pilgrim or are you making like Jessica Jones? They're all comedy, action comedies, but they all feel very different. And it's like, that's where the compromise is when you're like, well, we'll kind of do like it somewhere between Jessica Jones and Scott Pilgrim. To me, it doesn't work. It's like, well, okay, do we have graphics on the screen? Are we going to do freeze frames and super slow-mo? And once you start kind of melding everyone's ideas together, that's when things start getting kind of crappy. Yeah, there's a little bit of, um, because this is sort of a new model, typically the the person whose vision it is, is the person doing the hiring, right? So this person who, you know, on like any of my shows, if I don't get to direct all of them, I'm hiring directors who see it the same way that I do. And I want them to add things and for them to put their own twist on it, but it's not reinventing the wheel or going in an utterly different direction. It's just plussing the vision that we're all sharing. So what's interesting about, I think, your predicament is that you've got three different parties that are all equal and all see things slightly differently, but you're all still a part of that team. And so there's no, there's no one. That's why there's a hierarchy typically is so that someone gets to say, Hey, it's my show. You know, I'm the boss. It's my movie. This is how we're doing it. You know, it's kind of this, this interesting, unique challenge to be in the process so early that I, you know, I think it's going to be, I know it's going to be fine, and I think that maybe this is the way that you end up with something extra unique or extra distinctive and how style is sort of formed. Because when you say Kill Bill and Edgar Wright and Wes Anderson, those are all still hyper-stylized. You know, like the, I, in a broader sense, I would kind of put them not in maybe the same bucket, but adjacent buckets. Well, it seems like, I don't know that we came up with, with an, much of an answer, but it is... I am curious if our listeners have ever been in situations where they have to direct something for somebody else and that other person's creative vision is just totally different than their own and how they've handled it. You um, know, actually, it, it does remind me, well, I did have one thing where I was on a client job and uh, the bosses wanted to change a thing that, it was like a custom built prop and it was pretty expensive, like super expensive. And the day before we were going to shoot that prop, they said, hey, we want to change it. And so we're going to pay for someone to work overnight to redesign this prop so that it works the way that we want it to be. And I was mad. I was really upset about it. And I, I was pretty emotional. I was like, hey, I think this makes the project worse. I don't think we should do it. And they said, okay. 
we disagree. And they did it anyway. And that was that. Yeah. It was the worst. And did it make the project was, worse? Uh, in my eyes, in theirs, no. You know, we just disagreed. <laughs> right. And I guess there is something to that for in terms of working relationships and keeping them healthy. There is something to saying like, hey, look, I personally disagree. I, I like the other direction better, but let's just do it like this and let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. And there, Again, and I don't no think choice. you make you make movies like Drive when you talk like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't know how much how many commercials Nicholas Wending Ruffin has made or would ever care to make. Yeah. Cool. Well, Matt, thanks for your insight on collaboration and double dipping. I think that stuff is super helpful for me, hopefully for some other people. But let's move on to this new segment that you dreamed up. So Matt thought up of this cool segment called the call sheet, where we look at a call sheet. For those of you that don't know what a call sheet is, it's the piece of paper that you get. And nowadays, it's a PDF file before a shoot that tells you where the shoot is, what the actors are, what order the scenes are. And then on the back of the call sheet, there's a list of everyone that's working on the production. The you know producers, the assistant directors, the cinematographers, the grips, the, the vendors, the craft service people, everyone pretty much, the clients. So we thought like, let's just take a call sheet and let's start at the very top and look at the positions. And Matt and I will kind of give our insight or perspective on each position and we'll do a different position each segment and kind of what we look for in that person when we're hiring them if we are the person that hires them and a few little tidbits on how we work with them so for today i think uh, on the call sheet that i'm looking at which was for my shoot from yesterday the very first position listed is producer producer perfect and their phone number and their email address and their call time which is why it's called the call sheet Exactly. So uh, let me ask you, Oren, real quick. Is Was your producer, were they called at the same time as everyone else or did they have a later call? <laughs> well, this specific producer that I worked with yesterday, which you've also worked with, likes to give herself as late a call time as possible. So the production assistants, you know, the people that are setting up the tables for breakfast and all that stuff, were called in at 6.30 a.m. Our producer put 7 a.m., but I don't believe she actually got to set till 7.45 a.m. Pretty baller, pretty baller. Yeah, so uh, that's a funny thing about producers is that some of them are real, like, like to get there before everyone else and make sure everything is really in great shape. And some of them like to just kind of walk in after everyone's found their feet and everything's kind of running smoothly already. Right. And so the producer, I would say, is in charge of the production team, which can be as small as just the producer. They're taking care of you know, money, making sure everyone's there, food, making sure we're doing things on time and getting in and out and all that uh, on the big scope. There's there's specific people that are in charge of those on the small scope, but the producer is, is in charge of making sure the production goes well, the post-production goes well, the pre-production goes well. They're kind of on the line for everything, for money everything. and right. time and schedule and all that stuff. Yeah, which is to say that some of them stress out about every little thing and want to get there before everyone. And some of them are just like, hey, I've got so much on my plate. I need you to, you know, they delegate and let people run with it. Right. Um, and oftentimes they're one of the few people on set that can fire the director. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and hire them, which is why I think that Oren, maybe more than any other crew position we work with the same producers all the time you and i like like yes there are very few producers that hire me that don't hire you and vice versa so and yeah and so the production team i said it could be just them they could be the ones that are going to trader joe's picking up snacks for the shoot or they might have a production manager a production coordinator 
a key PA and a bunch of other people underneath them that are taking care of the nitty gritty permits and release forms and NDAs and getting all the paperwork going and setting up the tables and figuring out what truck is bringing what thing. So the producing department can really be all over the place. But in general, for me, what I like in a producer is I like someone that has read the script and has an opinion on it because I've worked with many producers that don't, you know, they're just getting the money and they just want to give the product to the client and they don't really care what it is. So I want, I like a producer that is in, interested creatively mm-hmm. and wants to be proud of the work we're doing. Which um, is I like funny. A, and I totally yeah. agree. But just, just to play devil's advocate, it's, I think as a young person, it sounded, it sounds crazy that someone would not really bother reading the script. That sounds insane. But well, the but you know how we're working are. You with. get one script and then there's like 800 revisions. There's the producer that will read all the revisions and say, oh, I think it's gotten better. Oh, I missed this part, you know. And right. then there's the producer that has maybe reads the first and last version of the script but doesn't know why we we are where we are with the script. Right, you know? exactly. And, and, and in their defense, you know, they, they can get by without having read every single version and still make a great product. And sometimes they've got six or seven other shoots that they're worried about. You know, sometimes that week or sometimes ne- next week, you know, depending on what sort of company you're with and what sort of volume you're cranking on, the more you work, the more it becomes apparent why most of your team has not read the script and doesn't care to. Right. You know, and that's And if the director is in charge thing. of the creative vision, the producer in charge is in charge of the production vision. I don't know if that's a mm-hmm. word, but they are the ones that are on the hook to get things done. Um, exactly. And so they don't necessarily need to to be creative. Like my producer, for instance, uh, th- this one that I worked with yesterday on every shoot says, okay, we have enough money for one toy. What do you want it to be? A Steadicam, a jib arm, you know, a harness rig. What You get one thing. I don't care what it is, but you get one thing, you know. And so she gives me the freedom to really select where I want to put a lot of our budget and time into. But, you know, on certain projects, she's very involved in the script. What we shot yesterday, she was involved a lot. She even rewrote some of the versions on other projects. Like you said, she's working on 10 things at a time. And she's just like, I don't care. Just tell me what you need, what crew you need, and we'll be there and we'll shoot it, you know. So exactly. Yeah, I I think those are kind of two versions of the producer. And a lot of producers, it depends on the project, if they're really excited about it. You know, a lot of feature producers tend to be more creatively involved than commercial producers, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do partially just because it's so hard to make a feature and you don't make that many in a year. You know, like if you're doing two features in a year, that's you're cranking pretty hard. So right. you, and ha- that's why producers, you can't afford to not be involved. Yeah, and that's why producers want to do features because it lets them be creative and be part of a bigger thing than have to juggle, you know, have to triple dip like the thing we talked about earlier where they're working on 10 things at once to make the all the money work. You know, the other big thing that I love in a producer is when they come to me, if they come with, to me with a problem, that, that makes complete sense. That happens all the time. I want to be involved. I want to know what's going on. I want to know why things are going the way they're going. But if you come with a problem and then a couple solutions, maybe they're not the best solutions, but like problem solving, that to me is the sign of a great producer. Yeah. When I worked on Miss 2059, you know, the Anna Connors show, we were shooting, you know, on a Thursday and we're supposed to shoot at this nightclub on a Friday. And about sometime in the late afternoon, maybe 5 p.m., my producer came over and said, hey, just so you know, the permit for the nightclub didn't go through. The city ended up rejecting it. 
So we can't shoot there. So we need to find a new nightclub. Here's three nightclubs. We're going to go scout two of them tonight. And we went that night. We found a nightclub and we shot there the next day. Changed the entire plan. But it's so much better than her saying, like, yeah, we lost that spot. Like, do we really need the nightclub scene? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because Um, the answer is yes. That's why it's in the script. Right. And no, we can't shoot it in an apartment. You know, mm-hmm, <laughs> like exactly. and and I think actually the nightclub that she ended up taking us to and bringing to us was way better than what was what we originally had. So it's interesting. Sometimes that stress on the production yields better results than you had planned for. Yeah. Well, thank you, producers. You do all yeah. of the hard work, so we don't have to. Yes, and as the producer I worked with yesterday loves to point out, you never get the credit when it's good, but you always get the credit <laughs> when things are falling apart. So, that is true. That is true. So, uh, we do have an appreciation for that. Thanks, guys. Well, Oren, this was a great yes. episode. Do you have... Unpaid endorsements. Unpaid endorsements? I thought you'd never ask, Matt. I actually do have one ready. Again, I just thought of it at the beginning of the podcast. I don't think it's going to be that great, but... I use a Mac, like a lot of people, but I think this applies to both Windows and Mac people. I use Google Chrome because somehow in my head, I figured out that it was like the best browser. I don't know if it really is, but I've just kind of been using it for years now. And as I talk about on the show, I also do a lot of visual effects. I'm using Adobe Premiere and Adobe After Effects and Mocha and all these other kind of in Photoshop all at the same time. They're all pretty memory intensive. And I've noticed that when I have Google Chrome open, with like my 100 tabs that I always have open, everything else runs super slow. Like my Adobe After Effects half the time says like, sorry, I don't have enough memory to play more than one frame back of video. And it gets really frustrating because then I have to close my browser, restart everything. And you know, nowadays, I'm assuming everyone just always has a browser with their email open at the very least. Do you have that, Matt? Oh, always. Browser with your email open? Yeah, Yeah. So it's not like I can just not have it on. And I can use Safari and I can use Firefox, but, you know, whatever. This isn't a conversation about those other browsers. This is about how to make Google Chrome work. So today I got so frustrated. I Googled, like, why does Google Chrome take so much something memory on my computer? And I found a lot of people complaining about this with some really cool solutions. So Google Chrome has these, like, plugins. In Chrome, they call them extensions. And they have a couple that take care of just this one. So I'm going to tell you about two of them. I installed both of them today, and I'll, I'm sure I'll like one more than the other. But one is called OneTab, which, you know, I, I don't know about you, but every time I see an interesting article or interesting plugin or interesting something, I'll open up a tab and then, you know, save it for later to read. So if you have like 20 tabs open, you can use OneTab to turn all 20 of those into just one tab that just has a list of your tabs. And it takes oh, very wow. little memory. So it's saving all the memory from all those tabs. Um, just to rewind for one second, the reason Chrome takes so much memory up is because it's actually running a separate iteration of the entire Google Chrome for each tab you have open. Like a separate and so instance. In right? separate instance, yes. And that's so that if one tab crashes, it doesn't bring down the entire browser and all the other tabs. So it's pretty smart, but it also takes up a ton of memory. And so one tab takes all your 35 tabs that are open, puts them all in one tab and takes no memory. And then if you want to look at your tabs again, you click on that one tab, shows you all the tabs and you can open whichever tab you want. So that's the one I'm using right now. I like it because it declutters everything. So I just have my, like right now, all I have is like my call sheet open and my Gmail. I have our show notes from the Google Docs and I have one tab. And that one tab, if I click on it, it has like 14 tabs in it but they're not taking up any memory. So that's one thing. The other one is called the Great Suspender. 
And what that does is if you haven't interacted with a tab for an hour, and you can change the amount of time, but an hour seems about right, it will basically remove everything from that tab and just kind of save the URL. And so you'll click on it and it'll say this tab is suspended right now. Click on the screen to reload it. So in that, with the great suspender, you have all your tabs still open, but they're not taking up any memory if you haven't interacted with them in the past hour. So right now I'm going with one tab because I'm a little OCD and I like it. It's cleaner, but two kind of cool extensions. They have like a zillion five-star reviews. So I'm assuming there isn't like malware or too much spam built into them. But anyway, that's my endorsement. Check it out. One tab or the great suspender as part of Google Chrome. And if you don't use Chrome and you don't have a million tabs open, then I'm sorry for wasting your time with that endorsement. Yeah, well, you're just in enabling tab hoarders all over the world. Oh, yeah. No, I heard, hoarding this, tabs. The, the, I heard this thing. I don't remember where, but it's something about, like, you know, all those tabs you have open. Like, it's pretty much a f- fact that you will never read everything that you have open. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, yeah. Anyway. Good, good luck with your pile of tabs, Oren. One tab sounds pretty great to Thank me. You. The Great Suspender. Uh, that's a crappy name. Come on, guys. You can do better than that, right? It suspends, suspends ta- activity on tabs. I, works I just for me, think okay? of like, uh, yeah, sure. Crappy name or no, so it <laughs> works great. Cool. Well, my unpaid endorsement, we've talked about Daniels a little bit on this show. They're the director team yeah. of Dan Kwan and Dan Scheinert from, uh, they did Swiss Army Man, but I've uh, done a ton of commercials and music videos before that. And they, they turned down for what is kind of, I think, what really put them on the map. Yeah, turned down for what's kind of their big one. But all of their stuff is really great. And they have a very distinctive style. They are really great at like swish transitions and like crazy like match cutting, all sorts of uh, speed ramping, tons of particles in the air. It's all really awesome and, and super fun. So, very distinctive directors. There's an article on IndieWire called Daniel's Nike Olympics Commercial, How They Brought Swiss Army Man Weirdness to Network TV. And I think it's a really great article about the way that these guys, who are so distinctive and so cool, did a a, a giant campaign for Nike that's running during the Olympics right now, but is still very distinctively them. Like, you watch this spot, and there's no way you think it's anyone but Daniel's. So... I totally recommend checking it out. It basically the pitch is that, you know, it's kind of like lifestyle moments of all of these different young people in different athletic areas kind of achieving and a narrator who's Oscar Isaac from Star Wars is like, hey, you can do anything, you know, kind of typical Nike stuff, right? And it's cool and stylized. And then you think the spot's over and then a guy on um, like doing gymnastics is like, no, I'm not done yet, and starts going crazy and like spinning around. And we cut back to all of the other people who had been narrated over before, and they're like, uh, you know, I'm going to win the Olympics. I'm going to run faster than anyone's ever run before. And it just kind of goes insane off the rails with all of these people doing these crazy stunts. And like at a certain point, like there's a guy riding on top of a car with a basketball. The car crashes. He jumps off and slam dunks a basketball, right? Just totally bonkers stuff. It's great. But the article explains how the Daniels were brought into Wyden Kennedy, which is this uh, creative ad agency, and how they were really given free reign to say, here's the premise. These are the ways in which we'd like to plus it. And so mm-hmm. it's just wow. this, it's this monumental. Yeah, I'm watching the commercial now while you're talking about it. It's incredible, it, right? It's nuts. Those guys, 
Well, have you seen their short, interesting ball? I, think I have. Even talked about I have, it and they and they reference it in the article in the a article. little bit. Yeah, yeah, because they were so frustrated by doing commercial work. That's why they said, "Hey, we want to do interesting ball." as just a way to um, spread their wings a little bit and, and it inadvertently helped them develop the style that's so distinctive and what they're known for now. So uh, we'll have a link to both the spot and the article. It's got a great inter- interview snippets on how Daniels became Daniels and how insane this spot is. It's got 20 locations, 70 characters, and roughly 500 extras. And you feel every single moment of it. I wouldn't be surprised if the spot do costs you know what the more. Budget was? I don't know what it costs. I wouldn't be surprised if it costs more than Swiss Army Man. Like $5 million. Yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah. It's like a really incredible, impressive piece of work. And frankly, I think kind of worth it. I haven't been this excited about a Nike spot, you know, since I was a kid, basically. So, well, these guys I know, kind of know, the Hoffman brothers. They did um, these Nike ads where it's kind of like found footage. It's just like a camera, like at a soccer, like pointing at it, like David Beckham or something. And he's like at the halfway, you know, line of the field, the center field line. And the camera's like in the goal. And he like kicks the ball and bananas it and it hits the camera. And it was just one of those things where, you know, they just did like 80 takes until he hit the camera perfectly. Wow. And they did a commercial where a guy like runs and like jumps over cars but very like kind of handheld video camera style. Mm-hmm. And they they did some really cool Nike stuff, which is also they had like such a distinctive voice that they I think they might have done. Remember, do you ever see that Pele commercial where he puts on these golden Nikes and he's like uh, juggling the ball and then he kicks it against the goal, like halfway across the field and it bounces back to him and he keeps juggling it? Uh, I think so, actually. Yeah, but it feels like very huge, found footage. Huge, huge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's um, really so, cool. Yeah, Nike does some cool stuff, and they're not afraid to spend some money. <laughs> yeah. Which is cool. But yeah, the Daniels, man, they're like, uh, so I good. wish I had a Daniel. I wish I had another Oren. That, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> well, awesome. As usual, your endorsement's much better than mine. I'm just, just going to open all my tabs back up. Open now. up all your tabs onto IndieWire. I just hang out on the internet too much. Cool. Okay, well, Matt, great episode. Yeah, another good one. Thanks, Oren. You know, if you wanted to drop us a line, you could give us a call at 2626-SHOOT1. Tell us what you thought of the show. Ask us a question. We will air your voicemail on the air. Super fun. If you want to learn more about the show, you can visit us at justshootitpod.com. We have show notes, our links to our endorsements, and a ton of archives as well. So check it out. A lot of good stuff there. In the meantime, you can follow me at Mr. Matt Enlow. And me at Smitey Pileg. And the show at Just Shoot It Pod. While you're at it, do us a favor. Rate us on iTunes. It really helps us Tell out. your friends about us. Tell your friends about us. Tell your mom. It would be great. This episode was edited by Eric Cropo. Thanks, Eric. And music Thank you. was provided by Steve Combs. Take it away, Steve. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.